Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Scott Cooper, the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, also known as A16Z for the 16 letters between the A in Andreessen and the Z in Horowitz. Scott is responsible for all operational aspects of running the firm. He joined Andreessen at its inception in 2009 and has overseen its rapid growth from three employees and 300 million under management to 150 employees managing in excess of $10 billion. 
Scott has served on a number of industry-related boards, including as chairman of the board of the National Venture Capital Association, and he currently sits on four nonprofit investment committees. A few months ago, Scott published the national best-selling book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital, and How to Get It. Our conversation is a full-blown interview of one of the leading venture capital firms and the dynamics at play in the venture industry. We cover Scott's shift from finance to an operating role and from an individual producer to a manager. We then discuss the formation of A16Z, its founder-centric investment model, building services to increase their portfolio company's chance of success, sourcing investment ideas, conducting due diligence, making decisions, the competitive environment, board seats, changes in the venture industry, the cardinal sins of venture investing, new frontiers for venture investment, how venture capitalists manage their own money, and the purpose of writing his book. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my first meeting with Scott Cooper from Andreessen Horowitz. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with your background and just go from there. <laughs> okay. I grew up in Houston. I came out here to go to school, so I went to Stanford and was lucky to kind of stay through law school and about halfway through law school decided that I didn't actually want to be a lawyer, which, as my parents always remind me, was probably something I should have figured out before I went to school. But I was lucky enough just to be here at the right time, which was I was graduating law school in 96. As we know from our tech history, it was literally the very beginning of what turned out, of course, to be the massive bubble. And so went from there to investment banking having little to no background in that area. But basically, they said, look, we need bodies who can sit at the printers and actually get these companies out. And then serendipitously met Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz when they started this company called LoudCloud in 1999. I had taken a company called Epiphany Public, and one of their folks left to join Mark and Ben and said, hey, you got to meet these guys. They're trying to change the world and do this whole cloud computing thing. And it was a series of 20 years of decisions after that, but that's basically how I ended up in this seat. What was the decision to go from banking to kind of operating at a company? I'd like to say it was very well thought out. I think the reality was it was kind of a bit of, I got caught up in bubble hype. You know, here I was having a lot of fun doing banking, but I would go on the road with these companies and I would see what the companies were doing relative to what I was doing as a banker. And I was like, that seems pretty fun. And if I'm going to be traveling anyways, I may as well have the opportunity to see what it looks like from the operating side. So I wish I had a better story than that, but it was probably more jealousy and envy to a certain extent of thinking that the grass was greener on the other side. And in many respects, it was, and certainly in other places, it wasn't. So what was that first operating experience like? So I joined LoudCloud initially on the finance side. We didn't have a CFO at the time, and this was a very capital-intensive business. And so since I'd come from banking, I got nicely typecast as the guy who knew something about raising money. And so I joined, and we quickly raised. At the time, it was a Series C financing, which was crazy because we were about six months old at the time. So we, we went out and we raised $120 million in like a crossover round with people like Integral Capital, which is where like Roger McNamee used to be and folks like that. And then we basically decided very shortly thereafter to start the IPO process. So we finally did hire a CFO who I worked for at that point in time. But basically, I spent the first two to three years essentially raising capital, doing investor relations, making sure the business was running in that sense. And then one day I went to Ben and I said, hey, look, I'm kind of typecast as a finance guy. Can you help me change that persona? And he said, well, we had just acquired this business in North Carolina. 
And he said, look, we need someone to go run this business. It's basically a bunch of engineers. Can you go out there and do that and basically kind of be the local executive and person in charge of this group? And I said, great. I know absolutely nothing about running engineering organizations, but this sounds like a perfectly fun, interesting opportunity. So that's kind of how I started to transition out of pure finance into more operating roles. And what did you learn when you first got there and sitting in that seat all alone? It was tough. I mean, it was I was kind of the the person from corporate who came out to try to build this new office. And so, look, I had had all the institutional history of being part of the business. And so in that respect, it was easy because I could represent what was happening in California to this group in North Carolina. What was hard for me was just, admittedly, I had no domain expertise in the area. So trying to figure out how do you manage engineers and how do you make sure you know enough about what's happening on the technical side so hopefully you can have a realistic conversation about deliverables and what needs to happen. And it was tough. I Definitely many times I called up Ben and I said, I'm not sure if this is going to work. And to his credit, he's like, look, you're going to figure it out. Here's what you need to do to get yourself acclimated to it. And it turned out working out fine. So what were some of those early lessons? Yeah, the big one was he's like, look, a lot of what you're doing is understanding, number one, what does the organization need in terms of people and structure, right? And so don't like overthink things too much, but figure out, okay, like what are the deliverables and what do you think you need? And then importantly, he said, look, it's not true that to manage a function, you always have to have individual contributor domain expertise in an organization. So you have to kind of change your mindset a little bit, which is don't view that necessarily as a handicap, but make sure that you spend the time to go dig in and understand at the right level of detail. But people understand and recognize, look, I'm not going to be able to go look at their code, which was not obviously what they wanted me to do, but I could represent the business side of what was happening. I could translate what the customers were looking for into the engineering side, and that was sufficient value add to hopefully make the role useful. How much time did you spend on the ground? I was there for four years, actually. So we lived in Raleigh from 05 to 09, pre the sale of the company to Hewlett Packard, and actually post the sale as well for two more years. And it was a great place. We, at the time, didn't have any people outside of here, basically. We had salespeople, of course, who were remote, but we didn't have any development organization. So we kind of viewed this as a way to build up a lower cost and dedicated engineering organization outside of the Bay Area. At the time, it's hard to believe now because it's gotten so crazy, even now hiring-wise, but the big recruiter that we were having struggling with were the big companies like Yahoo was basically slurping up all the engineers. And so it was really hard as a startup company to basically convince engineers out here to work for you. So we had a big group here. We had about 150 people, but you were getting to the upper limits of what you could do. And for us, this was a first opportunity to say, okay, can we replicate this model somewhere else where we think it will make sense? And we acquired the small company. It had about 10 engineers at the time. By the time we sold it to Hewlett Packard, we had almost 100 engineers actually working. And it was a great experience and a great turnaround for the company. So in that period of time when you you know you wanted to go from finance guy and try to do operating, at some point in time in those four years, did you ever think, huh, is this grass as green as I thought it was? <laughs> There were definitely lots of times I would agree with that. Yeah. The first switch, of course, you see this a lot with people is like, it's always, can you go from an individual contributor to being a manager, right? And that was the first. Luckily for that, I did that in my domain, which was I started on the finance side as an individual contributor. And then my first promotion opportunity in the company was to actually manage people. And that was hard. That was really hard, right? Because my whole life, you grow up and you go to school and everything you do is okay. Like, can you get an A on this test? Can you do these things? And the requirement to be successful is always a function of your own individual skill set, not of obviously rallying a team to do that. So I would say that was definitely a harder step function jump for me. And there were many times where, again, I would go to Ben and I would say, like, this is not good. And he said, look, trust me, once you learn how to manage, you're going to enjoy it and you're going to figure out how you can get leverage and still do the things you want to do. And he was absolutely right about that. And so what were those early managerial lessons? That- well, it was, you know, resist the urge to basically try to do it yourself. So there were lots of times where I'd be there late at night and I'd be reviewing work that somebody did, and it was perfectly fine. It wasn't that they had done it wrong. It was probably just maybe it was different from how I would have done it. And so the time it takes, obviously, to give them the feedback and allow them to fix it in a way that makes sense versus you just basically going into the Excel model and changing it. I mean, 
There were many temptations late at night to go do that, and I resisted that urge, luckily. Otherwise, I would have had a very short management career. Over time, obviously, I've been managing now for almost 20 years, and so over time, of course, you realize that so much of your job as a manager is keep the trains moving, be able to give people direction, answer questions. But obviously, if you overstep those bounds and you start to actually try to do the work that they're intended to do, it's not going to help anybody, and you may as well go back to square one. So I guess around that time, you spend your couple of years at Hewlett Packard, and Andreessen Horowitz is getting formed. Yeah. So we sold what was now called Opsware. LoudCloud changed its name. It became Opsware. We sold that in 07 to HP. And a bunch of us had some obligations to stay at HP for somewhere between one and two years. So I was running at the time the global support business for HP Software, which was kind of a fun, interesting scale management job because, you know, one of the challenges in the Valley in startups is, right, you can cap out pretty quickly on how big the organizations get just because a lot of these companies, now it's different, but certainly at the time, a lot of these companies didn't get that big. And so this was fun. I had like 1,500 people across the world and it was a billion dollar p and was a fun kind of interesting experience, but I knew it was not a long-term career choice. So what happened was Mark and Ben finished up their obligations in 08 and they were doing angel investing on their own and having fun, but doing it out of their own capital. And we kind of had a bunch of conversations off and on, finally culminating in the summer of 08 with a more serious set of discussions where they said, look, this is a lot of fun, but we think the opportunity is much bigger and we think we can have much bigger impact if we actually do this at an institutional scale and go out and raise a fund. And again, if you know your history, this was summer of 08, we were having these discussions, September 08, literally the weekend, Lehman goes bankrupt. I remember because I was actually on vacation in the Outer Banks with my family in North Carolina, and I'm having a conversation with Ben about finalizing this opportunity. And of course, we had no idea at the time what was about to happen. In retrospect, it seemed like a crazy time to go quit a job and try to start a new venture capital firm. What was the philosophy at the time, or even today, how are you approaching venture capital? It's been pretty consistent over the years. So the basic philosophy was really a couple things. One was we said, look, for most of the history of venture capital, capital was the constraining resource, right? And the VCs had it. The entrepreneurs didn't. They needed to get it from the VCs. And so that really dictated almost the balance of power between the parties. And this is, again, a bit of an overgeneralization. But from early 1970s to mid-2000s, the VCs probably were higher up in the stack and the entrepreneurs were lower just because of that balance of power. And then our theory was, look, we started to see that change happening in part because the capital requirements were falling. And so it became a lot cheaper to start a company for lots of reasons that we can talk about. And access to capital, therefore, became easier. It no longer became the limiting constraint and the one thing that VCs had that entrepreneurs didn't. And so our basic fundamental view was, okay, if you fast forward that environment, it's likely to be the case that entrepreneurs will now have more choices of which VCs to work with because there will be capital in lots of different places, and therefore something other than capital will have to be what differentiates one VC from another. So that was kind of thing number one. And then the other founding principle was we like the idea of backing product-centric founders who want to be the long-term CEO for the business. In the success case, right, you get a Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, or you get a Jeff Bezos, or you get a Larry Ellison, or a Larry Page. And so we said, look, because these are product companies, we love the idea that the person who is the product visionary also is the CEO and therefore controls resource allocation and strategy and all this other stuff. And the whole design of the firm was, okay, if we back those types of individuals, many of them may never have had CEO jobs before. Some of them, quite frankly, probably have never had jobs before because a lot of them are coming right out of college. And so we built the whole firm around how could we improve the chances that that kind of founder-centric CEO could hopefully grow in over time to be the long-term CEO for the business. And so everything we've done to date is, okay, well, what do those people don't know? Well, they don't know the CIO at Goldman Sachs to go sell to. Great. How about we as Andreessen Horowitz, we build that relationship with the CIO 
and where appropriate, we introduce them and there's a now we can create a customer business development opportunity. So there's a whole set of basically these kind of networks that we were building to facilitate that development of a product-centric CEO. What are those networks? Yeah. So today there's five of them actually. And so one is the sales and business development network. And that's basically our job is we should know all the CIOs and CTOs of Fortune 500 and Global 2000 companies who could be likely customers or business development partners. And we do something here called an executive briefing where probably at least a thousand times a year we have executives from those companies come in. They spend a half a day or a day with us. And the point is for them to kind of get educated on the areas of technology they're most interested in. And then for us to basically connect them with our portfolio companies in a way that hopefully over time might create business opportunities. So that's one big one, sales and business development. Two is around talent. We have two groups focused on talent, one on executives and one on engineers and other technical jobs. And the idea is the same, which is if we can use our brand to go build a pipeline of great engineers or great CFOs or heads of sales, and then where appropriate, connect them into our portfolio companies, we can help accelerate the growth and development of our companies by giving them access to talent that's hopefully very much in demand. The uh, fourth group is around PR and marketing. And so we spend a lot of time building relationships with the business press and the trade press. Partly, we use those as outlets to help us market the firm more generally, but then we can use those same relationships to help our companies figure out ways to tell their stories and hopefully, obviously, help them grow. And then the final group is around corporate development, which is really around how do we help our companies with downstream investment, getting downstream investment, and also M&A work. And so we should know all the best capital providers who are downstream from us who might be debt or equity providers or otherwise so that we can help our companies through the subsequent funding process over time. So over the last 10 years, if you started with that idea, but there were three of you here, that's a lot different from today when there's- 170 today. Yeah. Yeah. How did you scale into being able to provide all those services? Well, it went faster actually than we thought. The key limiter is- do you have enough of a fee stream to be able to support, obviously, this type of headcount? And our first fund was, at least by today's standards, small. It was a $300 million fund. At the time, it wasn't that small, but by today's standards, it was small. What helped us a lot was we had a lot of these ideas, but we had some good early success in that fund from a liquidity perspective. So we were part of the group that bought Skype out of eBay, and then that got sold about 18 months later to Microsoft. We were an early investor in a company called Nasira, which was a software-defined networking company that got bought by VMware. And so what that did was it allowed us to accelerate the time to market for our second fund because we were showing some really great signs of progress. And then that was about a $650 million fund. So we immediately had the opportunity from a expense and cash flow perspective to effectively double the organization. And that really made a huge difference because... We had lots of ideas, but we were kind of doing it with onesies, twosies here and there, right? So we would hire a senior person to start the group, and then we'd kind of say, okay, go do the job for six months, come back to us, tell us what you think you need resource-wise, and hopefully we'll have enough money to be able to support your endeavors. And luckily, we're able to hire fantastic people, nearly all of whom are still today, who kind of bought into that vision and were willing to incrementally add as we had the flexibility and scale to do so. That model... At the time when you launched Andreessen Horowitz, there was a lot of noise about ruffling feathers of what had already existed. Take me back to where you were at the time and how that's evolved over the last 10 years. I think that's probably a fair statement. You go through these kind of cycles of disillusionment or whatever, right? You know, where first you look cute and people want to pat you on the head and say, you know, that's a cute little baby. And then, of course, as you go through adolescence, you become a lot less attractive. And then hopefully, if you come out the other end as an adult, you figure out how to live in the adult world. And so I think we initially benefited from, hey, we were something new. We were something shiny. And remember, right, this time was we raised the fund in 09, right? So we were in the what turned out to be the depths of the global financial crisis. And the huge benefit we had over other firms was we didn't have an existing portfolio, 
if you were around here in the Valley at the end of 08, Sequoia, who's a very well-regarded and, and has been a very successful firm, put out this presentation called Rest in Peace, and it had a skull and crossbones and a tombstone on the front of it. And they brought all their CEOs in. This was September of 8. They basically said, look, the world is ending. You will never raise another dime. Lay off as many people as you possibly can. Put locks around every single bank account you own and assume that the world is basically coming to an end. And it turned out not to be correct, of course, even though we went through, obviously, a difficult downturn. But part of the benefit of coming out in that time period was we said, hey, like we're open for business, right? We're here in first part of 09, and we've got no legacy companies to worry about, and we have the ability to invest. And not surprisingly, as you'd imagine, when everyone else is inward focused, the opportunity set for you as a new investor to come in and pick off some really phenomenal opportunities, Okta, for example, which you may know, that's a public company now that's done very well. We did a seed deal. We did a half a million dollar seed deal for Okta in 09, and it was competitive. But at the time, they're like, wow, these guys are optimistic about the future. They're excited about stuff. And we're optimistic by nature, but we also didn't have to deal with an existing portfolio. So that was a lot of what initially the environment we were in was people were very inward facing. And we had the opportunity to come out and tell our story. And you're right. I think we it's possible that we probably ruffled some feathers. I think the thing we did that probably people liked the least was for some reason, there had been this unwritten rule that you don't do marketing in this business for a long time. And I don't know how that came to be. But we'd all come from the operating world, right? And so we all thought of marketing as, look, it's a functional part of any business, right? Which is if you actually want to sell the product or the service that you're doing, you have to go tell the world, what is your brand? What do you stand for? What is the value proposition? And so for us, it was just completely natural to market. And I think people felt like, look, it's kind of ungentlemanly to market before you actually have 40 years of track record to do so. And amazingly enough, of course, if you fast forward 10 years from now, the entire industry has changed in terms of how they view marketing. So we were probably maligned at the beginning, and then it turned out we were just part of what was probably a long-term trend for the business. Yeah. So 10 years ago, you start with $300 million, and that seemed like a big fund. Yeah. Today, you're managing $10 billion. Let's start walking through how you actually put the money to work, because it's one thing to have all the services, but that's a lot of money put to work. So why don't we start with how do you think about just the sourcing process of where these ideas are going to come from? Let me back up for one second just to understand the thematic lens through which we view the world. So Mark Andreessen wrote this editorial many years ago called Software is Eating the World. And that's basically been our investment thesis for the last 10 years. And I think it will be our investment thesis at least for the next 10 unless the world changes. And the basic philosophy there is we all come from the software and computer science worlds. And we view software as a tool that will continue to automate and intersect with lots of different vertical industries. And so, of course, there's the obvious stuff like software in the consumer world, like Amazon or Facebook or others. And then there's, of course, other stuff like financial services that has been obviously heavily dominated now by new innovation and software. And that's led us into lots of other industries over time. So that's the one consistent theme we've had over the years is I think part of our job to answer your question on sourcing is – we need to be in front of all the most interesting entrepreneurs who are doing something cutting edge in software. And then we need to, quite frankly, be open-minded enough to let them drag us into a vertical that we might not have thought about, but for which we can then go do the diligence to say, okay, does the intersection of software with that vertical make sense? So I'll give you an example. We now have a life sciences fund. We call it bio. And it's, again, convergence between software and life sciences. So an example would be a company that's using machine learning techniques, for example, to help improve diagnostics for cancer, something like that, right? That's a company called Freenome that's in our portfolio. And we initially, as a firm, when we started in 09, we didn't have a view around life sciences. But what we saw over time was 
more and more entrepreneurs were coming out of both computer science and life sciences programs from an educational perspective and starting businesses in this area. And we said, look, over watching that and kind of observing it for a number of years, we said, look, we think there's a critical mass here where if we bring in the right people who have that dual track expertise, there's a really interesting investment opportunity. And so we started in 2015 a fund to do that having looked at this from like 2012 to 2015 and started to see that. And so to me, that kind of illustrates a lot of how we think about the sourcing thing, which is think of it as we're in the talent business. And our job is we need to identify what is the talent doing. And it's not always the case that everything the talent's doing is a great investment opportunity, but we need to go investigate that and figure it out. My partner, Chris Dixon, jokes about this, which is part of this job is figuring out what do nerds do on weekends that can ultimately become mainstream opportunities. And by the way, I mean nerds in the most uh, <laughs> loving and friendly way. But you know, if you look at life sciences or if you look at the history of crypto or things of that sort or AR and VR, drones, a lot of these things are things that kind of look like hobbies. They look like small little things that are on the fringe. And not all those things will become big industries, but often there's a reasonable correlation between stuff that starts as a engineer hobbyist activity that can evolve into a mainstream area. And that's part of how we think about it. So sourcing wise, we've got to be doing that proactively. And then the other piece of sourcing, of course, is so much of our business is a referral and relationship business. And so we spend a lot of time talking to professors at schools, understanding what's happening in their labs. There's lots of what we would call nodes in the system of people who are just very well connected in the entrepreneurial community who we need to make sure we're talking to them. There are investors who are upstream of us, like seed funds, right, who will see a deal in an earlier stage of history than we do. And then hopefully we need to cultivate the relationship. So that's a lot of the proactive and other elements that go into sourcing. Where do you come out on product versus entrepreneur? Yeah. At the early stage, it's really much more heavily geared towards entrepreneur. The reason for that, I think, is that we know that the product's going to change, right? So oftentimes, we're investing at the stage where there's just a couple people. They might have a PowerPoint. In some cases, they have a product, but it's fairly ill-formed at that point in time. It's certainly not what you would consider product market fit in the sense that like, we know exactly what the needs are of the industry. And so we're more interested in their thinking. We use the term idea maze internally, which is how did you decide, how did you incorporate market feedback to determine that this was the right first product as a way to gauge as the market changes over time, how good will you be at reincorporating that feedback and iterating on the product? Team, on the other hand, obviously people can change, but I mean, I think our view is, look, people don't change that much. And so the going in assumptions around how they address problems, how they think about leadership, storytelling is a big piece of this, right? How can you rally people behind an idea that in some ways may sound crazy and irrational for them to quit their jobs and come work for you? Like so many of those intangibles are a lot more of what we think about because we think and we hope that that team will be the constancy. What will evolve over time is product thinking and go to market thinking. And so a foundational piece of that is do you have a team that's both thoughtful on those things as well as open-minded enough to respond to what they hear from the market and adjust appropriately. What does the process look like for, call it due diligence, yeah. but trying to figure out the answers to those important questions about a team that's come in the door? Yeah. So typically the way it works is, look, in the perfect world, we've been cultivating a relationship with people for hopefully 6, 12, as much as 18 months before they actually are ready to raise capital. And so a lot of that team engagement comes from just repeated reps with the team, right? So spending time in their offices, going out to dinners, whatever the case may be, but like developing a relationship just like you would any other professional relationship. Sometimes, you know, in the case where things happen on a faster time frame, it's much harder to do that. And so you do as much of that front leg work as you can. We do a ton of references, right? So we always, of course, ask people for front door references, which are fine, but we also 
we'll go through and try to figure out people who used to work with this person before, who may have left a company, and get a sense for how those things work. A lot of that reference activity becomes really important to identify that stuff. And then some of it is just, you know, hopefully our collective intuition of having met with the teams a number of times and seen what they've done, right? So the other thing, we talk about this all the time, but it sounds simple. The best predictor of future success is do you actually meet the milestones and deliver on the things that you said you were going to do? And obviously, there are some people who are very successful who struggle at the outset. But having that relationship over 12 or 18 months, the most important thing for us is to see, okay, this is what they said they would do. Can we measure what we call founder velocity, which is, okay, do they actually do and or outperform what they said they do? And units of output per hour is often a good indication of future success for these businesses. And what's the range of someone you've known or worked with in the past, and they come in with an idea and you're ready to write the check that day to something that's new to you and the team? There's lots of repeat founders who we've either worked with before in this business or now that we're obviously 10 years in or people who we just have seen in a different context. They're easier to evaluate, certainly no doubt, on the people side, just because we have more game film. It's just fairly simple. On the complete other end of the spectrum, look, there are times, unfortunately, where somebody comes in and they say, hey, great to meet you. I love this. By the way, I'm expecting term sheets at the end of this week. And so if you're serious, like you have effectively 48 hours to go do your work. And it's always unnerving to have to do that, particularly when you're dealing with a person that you just don't know, right? And you just don't have enough game fill on. And so look, we will scramble as much as we can and we'll do what we can. And sometimes you believe the upside opportunity is so great that it's worth taking that risk. And you try to avoid those as much as possible by being proactive. But sometimes that's the right thing to do. And some of those work out and some of those don't work out, unfortunately. How's the decision-making process work here? We are decidedly not a consensus organization. So when we started, and Mark and Ben have been very true to this over time, as we said, look, We worry that if you go around the table and you ask people to vote, you end up with reversion to the mean type thinking or groupthink, right? And fundamentally, this is an outlier business. And so we expect that not every decision is going to be obvious to everybody. So the basic way it works here is we have a defined process that you have to follow, which is we have deal review meetings weekly. You've got to get your deals on there. You have to talk about them. You have to have done a certain amount of diligence. Everybody gets the chance to see the deal before we talk about it. But then basically, we essentially sit around and have a what I would call an informal debate process. And anybody who's got a view on the business is able to express an opinion. And at the end of the day, we don't need consensus. What we need is the person or persons who were advocating for that deal, are they still pounding the table at the end of having listened to all the objections and all the crazy ideas that their partners are throwing at them and saying, okay, look, I get all that. I understand it. And you know what? I'm still committed for the next 10 years to go spend my life doing this. And I think this is one of 10 or 12 or 15 companies that I want to be personally involved with that can move the needle. And if all that works, then we will do a deal, even if, quite frankly, that's the only person who wants to do the deal. Now, I can tell you just in practice, as you can imagine, right, having been in partnerships yourself, it's hard for one person to go against 14. So it's not very often that that happens, right? And in some respects, it probably shouldn't, right? Because, look, if you can't convince at least one other of your partners that you're not completely insane, you probably shouldn't do that deal. But we've absolutely had things where we have a minority of people who are super excited about it and other people who have lots of questions. And Our view is, look, like we need to do that and we need to give people the ability to do that. And then once we make that decision, of course, the whole firm's got to like the debate's over. And now we're going to go put every resource behind this thing to try and make it successful. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year, 
That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So in this competitive environment across venture capitalists to do deals and sought-after companies, what are those dynamics actually like in terms of, is it collaborative? Is it cutthroat competitive with other VCs? Yeah, it's a weird business, right? Because you are part competitor and part collaborator with a lot of these companies. Because in general, as you know, right, these companies raise multiple rounds of financing. And sometimes it happens, but it's rare for a single venture capital firm to basically fund the company all the way through without other outside capital. So we always go into these companies assuming that, okay, what you really want in this business is you want to get in as early as you possibly can, where you feel like there's enough data that you can kind of make that decision. It's just simple dollars and cents, right? The earlier means you can put less capital at risk and hopefully own more of the company. But we also know that for most of these companies, then there will be subsequent rounds of financing where we will probably have new investors who come along. So I'd say the working relationship day-to-day for the companies that already exist where you have multiple board members from different firms generally works very well. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. Look, I'm sure there are people say things about one another here and there and stuff. But for the most part, like the working relationship when you're sitting at the board level is generally a very positive one between firms. But at the same time, where it gets contentious, obviously, is look, we are all type A personalities. We all want to win. And so when there is the A round for what we think is the next Facebook, we're each going to go basically put our best foot forward. And we all have our playbooks about how do we sell effectively our own wares and how do we sell effectively against competitors. And sometimes those things are, I would say they're heated, but you know, they're they're fairly open in the sense that obviously the entrepreneur is hearing from all sides at the same time. And luckily for us, we're able to compete very effectively in that kind of environment. But once that's done, then we all know, look, we need to now forget about whatever's happened in the past because we're going to be repeat players with lots of these other folks in the market over time. It's very different, right? I'm sure from the world you come in from the public world, which is if you and I both want to buy Apple stock, we can both buy Apple stock, right? There's no, I don't have to win for you to lose basically in this thing. Whereas look, there's only one A round of Facebook ever. And if I get it and you don't, then whatever returns come out of that will forever be mine and not yours. So it's kind of a weird dynamic in that respect. So when you're the closer brought in from the bullpen on the the start after deal, what is that last pitch for Andrews? Yeah, the biggest thing that we want to help people understand is money's not going to differentiate us anymore. And we're very clear about that. What we say is, look, if you want to basically have the best opportunity as particularly a founder CEO to build the long-term business you're after, wouldn't you be better off if, number one, we could surround you with a set of general partners, many of whom have been founders and CEOs themselves, and so kind of understand the company building process and are there as a resource. And the other thing that we talk about a lot, which is really true, is we do function more as a team here than I think many firms do. And again, I think that's just a that just harkens back to the fact that we all come from companies and we're used to working as a team. So just because Ben Horowitz is on your board, if you know you need access to Mark Andreessen or other people, everybody's fully incented to do that. And then the second thing we tell them is, look, we've got this team of 100 people who work on these post-investment teams, and their job day in and day out is just to think about what can they do to help accelerate the growth of your business. And so if you feel like we're good partners and we can add value, and obviously our money is no different than anyone else, then that's really fundamentally the pitch for why people should work with us. 
Are there other venture capitalists that have the breadth and number of people in those service roles helping the companies? Nobody's certainly done it at the scale that we're doing it at. So a big change in the industry over the last 10 years has been that there are more firms that are adding to their post-investment teams, which for a long time was really never part of the makeup of these firms. So it's growing, but I don't know what the exact number is, but I would say the next likely competitor probably has 10 or 12 people to the 100 people that we have. And we're certainly not planning to stand still. So you'll see us continue to grow that advantage over time. So when you lose out on a deal, what are the typical reasons an entrepreneur might give you compared to another competitor? If we lose, I think it's often a couple things. So one is, look, there's no question there are some deals where the entrepreneur says, look, all that stuff sounds great, but you know what? Like, I just want the least dilutive bid. So right, whoever has highest bid wins. And that sometimes happens at the very early stage. But sometimes as you get later in the cycle, people say, look, that's great. I have all those things already. And so I, I just value that less. And, and that's fair. And you know, obviously, we can have our position on it or not, but that's a fair distinction. The other reason if we lose is mostly going back what we talked about is it means we've often failed to build a relationship 12, 18 months in advance. And so we can always be in the mix on any deal that's happening. We're lucky to have, obviously, that exposure from a firm perspective. But there's no doubt that this is a relationship business. And so if another firm has done a better job of cultivating that relationship and really getting to know that individual, you've automatically put yourself at a disadvantage. So, so much of our activities are proactively identifying companies that we think are interesting and paying it forward, right? And saying, hey, look, let's Let's help them and let's figure out how can we add value to them before they're even part of the portfolio so that by the time they come to us, hopefully it's obvious that we're a great partner and there's no need for them to think about working with somebody else. How many different companies do you have across all the portfolios today? On the active companies, about 150 today. And we've either got a board seat or we've got some substantive investment. We have some seed investments that are smaller where we don't take board seats, but about 150 active is what we're managing today. And those board roles... How do you involve yourselves on the board, and how is that similar or different from other venture capitalists? I would like to think at least that we view ourselves as, since again, most of us have been on the entrepreneur side of the business, as hopefully understanding the company building process in a way that we can be helpful to a CEO. And so we try to have a very healthy respect for what can we do as an investor and what does the company do. And I think a lot of the failure cases in this business tend to be where I think venture capitalists overstep their bounds on the board and think they know more about the business than they actually do. And that's not to say that they're not brilliant, smart people. But you know, if you've been in a company, right, there's no way that you as the CEO, you know a thousand times more about what your organization is capable of and what this person's role in the organization is. There's no way that somebody who comes to a board meeting once a quarter or twice a quarter even can even help you think about resource allocation and those types of things. So we try to just very clearly define what's our role. And, and we think of our role as, look, hopefully it's to be a sounding board for the CEO, hopefully to help them think through critical things like organizational scaling and executive hiring. But if we're weighing in on things like product strategy, for example, we're definitely overstepping our bounds. And quite frankly, the CEO probably has a bigger problem. And probably the right answer there is, okay, like, let's go figure out, do we have the right people in the right seats, as opposed to us trying to actually play product manager, basically, from the sidelines. Yeah. And you started out with this notion that you'd love to find the product-centric founder who can also be the long-term CEO. That is quite different from my understanding that there's sort of an entrepreneurial founder, and then later down the road, you have an operator who tends to run the business. How do you figure out relatively early on if that product founder has the chops to make it through? Yeah, it's hard. And look, the honest answer is they don't always make it. And so, yes, there are still times where somebody comes in who's got more skill set on the operating side. 
we try to be active, as I said, as a board member to really kind of evaluate, are they growing into that CEO role? So for example, a great sign of success for a CEO is, look, are you hiring effectively? Do you anticipate the right time to bring in roles? And then can you convince people who in many cases are more senior to you and have way more domain expertise than you, can you convince them to actually work for you? And you see a big difference in the CEOs who can do that versus the ones who constantly either can't actually recruit in the first place or can't retain people in those seats because they just don't understand how to manage people who, quite frankly, are way more adept at their function than the CEO is in some cases. So a lot of it you can see in that area. A lot of it you see in the good or the bad of this business is we have subsequent fundraisers, right, that happen every 12 to 24 months. That's a great test of the CEO's medal of, okay, can I tell the story in a way that's compelling to a new investor? Have I defined the right set of objectives that other people externally will say? Those are clear demonstrations of success in the business. And so you get a lot of these checkpoints along the way. But look, as you know, changing a CEO is not something that anybody should take lightly. And so, you know, our default is we want to give people, obviously, the opportunity to grow into that. I wouldn't say it's obvious, but it's probably more obvious than you might expect at some point in time where both the board and the CEO may say, okay, look, I feel like I can't get to the next level in the organization. And, you know, there are certainly some where it's contentious. I don't want to suggest that that's not the case, but it tends to be more collaborative than you might think, at least. That's been a lot of our experience to date. I want to turn a little bit to the environment for venture capital and, and particularly what's changed over the last 10 years. I mean, a lot's changed, but what are the most important sort of developments currently? The biggest changes are, number one, time to exit for companies has dramatically elongated. So if you look at IPOs in particular, it used to be about six, six and a half years from founding of a company to an IPO. If you look at the data from like late 1970s to today, that's the median over that 35, 40 year time period. For the last 15 years, it's basically been 10 to 12 years. So we've almost doubled the time to stay private. And we can talk about it more. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it, a lot of which I think are actually capital markets related issues. So that's dramatically changed. I think the implications of that are, number one, what it means is there's a huge amount of money that used to be in the public markets that's now looking for appreciation in the private markets. Because when these companies go public, they're going public, obviously, at more mature, higher valuations. And so, therefore, the upside opportunity in the public markets relative to a Microsoft that goes public at a $350 million valuation, you know, 30 odd years ago, it's just very different. And so that's brought a lot of this very big public money into these late stage rounds. And that's why you see a lot of these headlines that I think make people question whether or not a bubble. But I think if you think about it in the context of this elongation of time period, it's really just a shift of dollars. These companies would have been public and those monies would have gone in in a public context. The thing number two is, as we started off, was the amount of money it's required to start a company has continued to fall. And that's given rise to this whole seed market, which we used to just have angels, which were people writing checks out of their own checkbooks. Now you have hundreds. The last number I saw was even more than I expected, something like 800 seed firms now in the US, which means funds that are probably $100 million in AUM or less. And so that means, number one, you get a lot of experimentation of relatively small amounts of capital to try new stuff. It also means it changes the competitive dynamic of the industry because whereas before, if you were a traditional venture capital firm, you were first institutional money in. Now you've got these seed firms that are ahead of you in the pecking order, right? So they're coming into these companies ahead of time, and that changes the mix. That means you've got to cultivate relationships with those people now, too, in order to make sure you've got a pipeline of companies into your venture business. And so it's really dramatically increased in a very positive way, I think, particularly for entrepreneurs. It's dramatically increased the competitive dynamics in this industry in a way that, as I said, personally, I think is a good and positive thing, but it's certainly very different from how it was. On that particular note, in theory, and I would imagine that the reason that ecosystem around seed stage funds has developed is because the returns have been there in aggregate. So it's attracted capital and it's been a good place to be. 
How does that play out for, call it a traditional venture capitalist or the post-seed venture capitalist? Basically, the way to think about what's happened is we've essentially had great inflation in the VC business. And what I mean by that is what used to be an A round is now a seed round, and what used to be a B round is now an A. And so essentially, the round sizes have gotten bigger. So an A round, in, and I'm using air quotes here, but in the old days, right, an A round was 3 to $5 million dollars. And it was probably maybe low double-digit valuations, right? Maybe fifteen to twenty million dollar valuations, if that. Today, that's probably a seed round, and the A round now is eight or ten million dollars, and it's probably forty or fifty million dollar valuation. Now, at first, you may look at that and say, okay, like the whole system has gone crazy, right? And nobody will ever make any money because essentially you have more capital at risk at higher valuations. The positive thing I would say is that the relative maturity of the companies at each stage also has gotten better. And so an A round today, probably these companies have some form of revenue. They certainly probably have a product out in market, not all cases, but many cases. Whereas again, the three to $5 million A round of 7, 10, 15 years ago was probably almost decidedly a pre-product, but certainly a pre-market company. So you have gotten a little bit of de-risking in that sense, but essentially that's what's happened. And so yes, nominal valuations are higher, there's no question. Now the trade-off that all of us are making, and we believe it's the case, and we're now seeing some IPOs that are bearing that out, is that notwithstanding the fact that valuations are higher, the end market opportunities, so the market size opportunities for these companies are just much greater, right? Because unlike 98, 2000, where you have 100, 150 million total global internet users, you now have 3 billion growing to 5 billion. And so you can get companies like an Uber or Lyft, or you can get companies like a Slack or others where the opportunity to build these standalone multi-billion dollar public companies is greater than it was in the past. So that's the bet we're all making. Obviously, look, we all believe it. And again, I think the data so far shows it. But the disaster case for this industry would be valuations and round sizes grow but we don't get the commensurate increase in market size, and therefore you basically just have taken that out of your returns. And on the other end, SoftBank just announced the raising fund. So there's the story that you just said that these companies can grow and can be bigger because of changing dynamics and software, internet users, all this stuff. On the other hand, you've got a huge hammer in the hands of Masasan, and he's going to find nails. Now, how do you think about that as either an exit opportunity or a potential problem down the road that there's just too much money chasing these opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So it's changed over the years. So I can't remember when the first fund started, but call it 15 or 16, somewhere around there. When they first started, they were a very, very disruptive and powerful force in part because they were a class of one. There was nobody else who had that amount of money who was willing to basically invest in $500 billion, multi-billion dollar rounds. And so the concern at the time was that they would say, okay, look, we're going to invest in some space, space Y or whatever it is. We're going to talk to the five companies in the space. We're going to pick one. And then everyone else was kind of nervous that if they weren't picked, there was no one else to basically backfill those companies. What's happened, interestingly, over the last four years is actually the number of new entrants in that space has grown pretty significantly. So there's not yet another Masayoshi-san still, but there are sovereign wealth funds that are doing much more direct investing activity. There are even like the traditional buyout guys like a TPG or KKR are doing activities there. We continue to see mutual fund and hedge fund activity. And so at least in terms of people who can write a 300 to 500 plus million dollar check, there are many more people today who could do that than there was when we had a class of one for SoftBank. So in that respect, I think it's made the environment a little bit more healthy in the sense that there are alternative funding sources for more companies than in the market. To your point, though, about what does it mean in terms of too much capital, I think still, and time will tell whether we're right, is... I think you have to think about this in the context of essentially the fact that companies are staying private longer, and this is a reaction to that, right? Which is, if I'm Fidelity or T. Rowe or BlackRock or Wellington, 
I don't see the type of growth opportunities that I used to see on the IPO market because just the maturity of these companies is greater when they go out. And so for me to tap into that for my funds, I've got to come into the private markets. And so I think really most of this is really just a wealth transfer of appreciation from the public markets into the private markets. And many of these people have lower costs of capital, right? So again, if I'm Fidelity, my benchmark presumably is NASDAQ or the S&P 500. I don't know what it is. But look, if I can underwrite to a net 15% IRR over a two and a half to three year period, that's awesome, right? And that'll be great. And I'll be a hero inside of Fidelity. Whereas look, for someone like us, our investors aren't paying us for that. So we just operate at a much higher cost of capital. And so therefore, yes, valuations are higher at that end of the market, but they also reflect the fact that you have lower cost of capital providers in that market. We'll see if we're right. We have been on record saying, look, those to us don't seem like signs of bubbles. Those seem like fairly rational changes in the capital markets that are happening. But there's no question that obviously there's always on any given company the ability to question whether valuation is appropriate for that company. $108 billion is a lot of money. Is this a secular trend, you think, that continues away from public markets for longer? I think it is. And we've been active as a firm, and I've been active personally in DC talking about these kinds of things. I think it's a bad trend for our country. Selfishly, it's very good for people who are investors in or who have access to private capital, because I think more and more of that appreciation will accrue there. But it's not a good thing for our country. It's a combination of all these things, right? It's a combination of the number of public companies shrinking by 50% over the last 20 years. It's a combination of the nature of IPOs changing, where these companies are staying private for much longer and therefore having multi-billion dollar market caps. I think it's all activist activity. It's all of the things that just the sum total of all them basically just make it collectively harder for most companies to feel like the public markets are as attractive of a place as they once were. It's something we need to fix as a country because I think the long-term economic stability of this country depends on us having very vital public markets. And I think we're moving away from that in a way that doesn't make sense. As you look at the, at least the publicly announced investors in this new SoftBank fund, there's this sort of dynamic that there's a strategic interest that might not be tied to just financial returns. So you have sovereign wealth fund might be financial returns, and then you see, oh, Microsoft's going to invest. And there's this notion that all of the companies that SoftBank banks will shift their cloud services to Microsoft. How do you think about those dynamics as looking at companies that may be exiting into that ecosystem? It's new and not new in one sense. So it's not new in the sense that corporate venture capital generally has actually been on the rise for the last 10 or 15 years. And we've seen a lot more corporations both setting up direct funds and in some cases just direct investing off their balance sheets. So this idea that corporates are interested both in terms of tracking technology companies potentially for acquisition alternatives, as well as what we read to your point about Microsoft, that they want to have their platform be the platform of choice versus an Amazon Web Services or something is definitely, that's not a new phenomenon. So that's been going on for a while. What is new is this idea that they would commit sums of capital that are very, very meaningful and actually effectively outsource that activity to somebody like SoftBank as opposed to doing it directly. My sense is probably the reason they're doing that, some of those bigger companies, is just that institutionally it's hard from an incentives perspective to make these corporate venture capital firms work because you always have this tension between are we a strategic investor or are we a financial investor and can we attract the right kinds of people internally who are willing to live with a little bit of those both objectives as opposed to a pure profit maximization initiative. So that may be part of what's happening. The other interesting piece to me on the soft thing is we'll see whether some of the existing investors come back. I hear different things depending upon which day I read about it, but a theory on why they might have had to kind of broaden out their LP base is that a lot of the firms now are very interested in doing direct investing on their own. And so the theory of needing an intermediary like a soft bank to get them access to those later stage deals, when often cases, just given their size and their scope, they now have direct investing efforts that can grow. I think that that need may have lessened over the last several years. And so it'll be interesting to see whether some people like the Saudi PIF funds and others come back in meaningful scale as they were in the past. After all these years 
sitting here as a venture capitalist, what are the biggest mistakes you've made? There's two cardinal sins, I think, in this business. So one is getting the company right, but not investing enough so you don't own enough of the company so that when it becomes a very large company, it doesn't move the needle. Luckily, I will say we haven't made that one, or at least I can't think of an obvious example of that one. The other cardinal sin is the sin of omission versus the sin of commission, right? Which is, look, I mean, the commission sin is you invest in a company that turns out not to work. That's no fun, but the reality is, look, that's the nature of this business. So probably half of what we do is euphemistically what we call impaired capital, which basically means you lost all your money, right? So we certainly worry about those things and we want to learn from those mistakes, but you want to learn the right lessons from those mistakes. In other words, it may just be that based on the, all the information and the assumptions you made, that that was a perfectly fine bet. In fact, you might make that bet again, basically, notwithstanding the fact that you know the outcome. The bigger mistake is the mistake of omission, right? So missing very large companies. Certainly Square is a company that we saw as early as the very, very first round and for a variety of reasons just didn't make the decision to invest. And as often happens with these companies that are successful, every round always feels expensive after that because you're like, oh, I remember when I could have bought it at this price, you create the opposite of the sunk cost fallacy, which is you knew what the reference price was before. And you now look at it the next round, you're like, wow, like that feels like a lot more money to pay versus what I could. And so that can cause you to get in this bad loop of you keep passing them because they feel like they're too expensive at the time. And unfortunately for us, Square's obviously turned out to be a phenomenally, incredibly important business, and you'd love to have that in your portfolio. So it's things like that that we worry more about than the commission mistakes where it was probably a good venture bet that for whatever reason just didn't turn out to actually be successful. You get the sense that there's this notion of serial correlation of returns among the top venture capital firms, which probably also means that maybe the market for the great entrepreneurs or the great ideas is relatively efficient. And those good ideas tend to get backed by that same group of entrepreneurs. If that's the case, you'd think that that error of omission doesn't come from the idea out of left field, but it comes from not being able to win a piece of the deal of the desired company. It can, yeah. So look, I think that's right. I think there's two omission errors, right? One is just, look, you are not the group of venture capital firms that that entrepreneur believes can add value to them in an appropriate way. And look, that's that's no more fun to be in that spot either, right? And so look, that's why so much of what certainly we've done is, many of the other great firms have done too, is you constantly have to think about, okay, like what value are we going to create for entrepreneurs in a way that makes us competitive, right? Because the worst scenario is, I'll use Mark Zuckerberg, even though I know today, obviously, he's underfired a lot of areas, but undoubtedly an incredibly successful and, and well-regarded entrepreneur. When Mark Zuckerberg starts his next company, right, if that ever happens, you need to be on that short list of venture capital firms that he says, okay, like I think they add enough value that I'm going to go talk to, right? And so, so much of the work you do every day is building your reputation and building your value add. But I think you're right. I think that's the problem. The other omission risk, of course, is you saw it and you just made a logical mistake, either because whatever, you didn't think the founding team was appropriate or you didn't think like their product idea, you didn't like their thinking on go to market. Those are no fun either, but at least you were in the game and had a chance to see it. We did that at Airbnb. You know, We saw the very first round and we just had lots of questions in our mind that didn't allow us to get there. We ultimately did the next round. But obviously, as you'd imagine, there's a substantial delta between the first round and the second round at a company of that scale. I always love asking venture capitalists using the Michael Lewis lingo, what's the new, new thing? <laughs> There's always some kind of new idea, new concept that most of the world hasn't thought about that venture capitalists are all excited about. I would say for us, the biggest thing, and it's not as new, new anymore, but I think it's still new in the sense that I think it's still underscoped, is this convergence of computer science and life sciences. And so we are spending a lot of time on it, not surprisingly. But if you talk to the team who is very focused on this in our group, what they'll tell you is biology is kind of where 
computer science was like late 60s, early 70s, which is we're about to see like this whole new set of technologies that will dramatically change the costs and the automation and the price curves for a lot of these things. And we're seeing it already, right? You When you just look at things like the cost it takes to sequence a genome and stuff, we've already finally seen declining costs there. But that's probably, I'd say, one of the most exciting areas where as we look at over a 20, 30, 40 year period, it feels to us that the amount of change that can happen in a space that's had predominantly been a fairly manual and pure science-oriented space is now going to be advanced, we think, with engineering techniques in a way that will dramatically change outcomes. The other answer to the new, new thing is, I don't know, to be honest. And in some ways, as we've talked about, I'm not sure it's necessarily our job to know. It's our job to be in front of all the interesting people who think they know what it is, and then for us to meet with them and hopefully be smart enough to allow them to drag us into places that we might not have gone because they've got some really killer idea that we didn't think about. And so that's probably even more our job than trying to tops down guess what we think the next new, new thing is. And what's next for the firm? Biggest thing for the firm is, look, for the next couple of years, continuing to do what we've been doing, which is heavy focus on vertical expertise on our early stage funds. So hiring domain experts who really are super deep. We just raised a later stage fund. For the first time, we broke it out. We've always done later stage, but we've never had our own fund and our own team. So that's a big initiative for us is to be able to double down on companies that are working in the portfolio as well as to invest for the first time in companies that we might have missed at an early stage. So continue execution there. Geographic expansion is not a big focus for the firm right now, so we're still a very heavy U.S.-centric firm. Probably 75% of what we do is around the Silicon Valley area. We still think, notwithstanding the fact that, yes, there is tremendous activity happening in lots of places outside the U.S., we think there's a huge opportunity here. And so just as a practical focus perspective, we're going to continue to stay focused. And then we'll think about if there's other areas where we can kind of leverage our industry knowledge to do potentially new funds or new investment opportunities. All of those are TBD at this point in time, but at least continue to think about how can we expand the range of services we provide. I want to turn to some closing questions, but I do have one question for you that is always, certainly for an audience that's used to hearing about capital allocation. Venture capitalists is a business. You generally can't compound your own money. What do very successful, wealthy partners do with their capital that's in addition to what's invested alongside their LPs? Someday, I hope to be able to personally tell you what the answer to that is. But uh, right now, we're still in investing mode. I think you actually see a lot of venture capitalists actually do think about venture and startup activity as a way to continue to compound their wealth. So a lot of what, we haven't done this, for example, but some of the other firms have kind of created effectively almost endowment-like models inside their own organizations where private equity is a material component of that. So I think that happens. Somebody once told me this, uh, you only need to get rich once, and then part of your job when you do that is actually also preserve capital and make sure. So I do think you know there's also probably a segment of the population that says, okay, look, I would now like to have a nice 70-30 portfolio that has some normal private equity exposure on the endowment side of my assets, but that quite frankly, for most of my assets, probably is a little bit more barbelled towards traditional equities. So I think there's probably components of that. But my guess is, look, people who come into this business are risk-seeking to begin with. And so I would imagine if you actually did a survey of asset allocation among venture capitalists, whether retired or active, my guess is they're heavily levered to NASDAQ. Their jobs are levered to NASDAQ. Their houses are. Certainly their carry-based compensation is. So my guess is probably it's a more risk-seeking group generally. Yeah. When you sit on investment committees, what do you see happening in terms of decision-making or asset allocation that differs with your view of looking at the world? The biggest thing that's happening right now, and this is true for the committees I sit on as well as just when I talk to LPs generally, right, is there is this very broad overarching view that, okay, the returns that we have seen in the public markets are not likely to persist. 
And so therefore, just at a very high level, you've got as between public assets versus private assets, there's obviously, at least from what I see, and this is true, I think, globally, there's a very big push from public assets into private assets, right? Both for alpha generation as well as just for, quite frankly, nominal return, absolute return, appreciation. And then the other kind of overlay that I see is there's a lot of non-U.S. investors who just the idea of having U.S. dollar-dominated assets is still very attractive to them, right? And sometimes that's because of geopolitical issues, sometimes just because of, quite frankly, rule of law and economic stability issues. And so I think what's happening, if that persists, I think what you will see is more and more dollars shifting from public markets into private markets. Obviously, a lot of those dollars are seeking growth and hopefully non-correlated assets, although you know, obviously there's always the question of whether any of these things are actually non-correlated. And so I think, look, that's a natural tailwind that I think the industry has. So the good news is, I think that means for people who are asset allocators in venture, it's good for us in the sense that there's a lot of great LP activity out there. The bad news is, at some point in time, this is a capped market, which is, look, you know, we are constrained ultimately by the number of entrepreneurs who can start new businesses. And while that market continues to grow, it's not obvious to me that it will always grow at the pace of capital availability into the market. And so right now, you know, the industry is taking in $40, $50 billion a year, roughly, in the U.S. in terms of new LP commitments. I think those are reasonable levels that can stay in the business. You know, if we go back to 60, 70, 100 billion, which is where we got to at the peak of 2000, then I think you get to the point where the economics of the business, unfortunately, probably just can't support that level of activity. So the book you wrote, Sue, I really enjoyed. There's a great description of how venture capital works. And then there's a deep dive on the deal dynamics, trying to level the playing field with entrepreneurs and, and what happens in the boardroom. What were you hoping to accomplish by writing the book? The main thing was exactly that, which is I wanted to kind of demystify the business a little bit. So what I find now having been in this business for 10 years and then in tech for another 15 is there's this unspoken asymmetric information between VCs and entrepreneurs. It's probably not surprising, obviously, because look, we do this thing hundreds of times a year and the most successful entrepreneurs might raise capital five, six, seven, 10 times in their whole life. And at least what I worry about is sometimes the nature of things being a black box and having asymmetric information is it creates just distrust, I think, between the organizations. And what I try to articulate in the book, and I hope it comes across, is look, at the end of the day, we actually have the exact same objective, which is both of our objectives between the entrepreneur and the VC side is, look, can we build very important, sustaining, incredibly profitable businesses over time? And we're not going to agree on everything at all times. But to try to take a little bit of that asymmetric information away and at least kind of shine a light on the black box, I think is good for the industry. I think it's good for entrepreneurship. And my hope is that people who might have been skeptical or didn't feel like they understood the business view it now as it's an easier business to get into, whether it's an entrepreneur or a VC. And look, I think it's just good for it's good for economic development and growth in, in our country in particular. So that was really the main objective was to try to demystify it in a way that hopefully creates greater opportunities for entrepreneurship. What's happened since it came out? It's been great. So far, the feedback's been great. My gauge is always Twitter, which is where I'm very active on. And for anybody who's a Twitter user, as you know, the default Twitter is you get flamed and you get horrible feedback on people. And luckily for me, at least, uh, because I'm highly sensitive to those things, most of the Twitter feedback is very, very positive. So so if that's a gauge, then I will take that as success. All right, great. Let's turn to some closing questions. Yeah, What's sure. your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I've been a runner my whole life. I still love running. I find it's just for both physical as well as just mental health. I find it great. Unfortunately, these days, my knees aren't quite what they were. And so I can't do what I used to do. But if I was saying to my wife last night at dinner, like, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't run. Like, I would have to find some other serious outlet. And I have no idea what that would be. What's your biggest pet peeve? This is a relationship business. And I guess my biggest pet peeve is when people try to almost create some reason to meet as opposed to just saying, hey, look, I just want to pick your brain or I want to do something. You know, There's this whole meme around here, which is let's get coffee, right? It's kind of everybody's famous thing. And 
Look, I think the reality is most people probably don't want to get coffee with one another, but I also think the reality is most people are very open to and willing to take 10, 15, 20 minutes out of their day to just talk to somebody who they have no idea who it is just to kind of learn more and pay it forward. And so I guess people being more transparent about what they want would actually be perfectly fine. And I think they would find the response rates are probably better because you can only have so many coffees in one day. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I think it's mostly when people tell us they tell us the things that they think we want to hear as opposed to what they're trying to do. So an obvious one that we see a lot is people tell us this wonderful story about how they're going to change the world and this business is so great. And then they say, oh, by the way, don't worry, because if it doesn't work, these four companies will acquire us, right? And the reality is, look, that's not what we want to hear. It's just like you have this cognitive dissonance, which is, look, if this business is so great, why are we even thinking about this? And the reality is, we achieve diversification through our portfolio. I don't need an individual entrepreneur to achieve diversification for us. It's great to know that there's somebody out there who might buy it, but like none of us is playing for that outcome, right? We're playing for the outcome of you being successful, and we recognize the reality is that the odds are probably not in your favor just on a pure basis. And so I would much rather people tell us their conquer the world strategy than tell us their risk mitigation strategy. It's just not how we're incented from a business perspective. What reading do you almost never miss? For people who follow me on Twitter, we will know like I read every day. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times. I read them very quickly, so I scan them. But I definitely uh, I scan for the stuff that's interesting. But I try to I try as much as I can to tweet things that are actually not right down the straight fairway of our business because there's plenty of resources for that. I try to find interesting things. Hopefully, they're off the beaten path. But those are the daily things that probably I just I never miss. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents were always big believers and still to this day just in being inquisitive and education as a very, very critical foundational skill set. And I was lucky to have them support me in, in college and things of that sort. So that's, I think that's the biggest thing that stayed with me. It's just this idea that, look, we're all on this lifelong journey of continually trying to learn and learn new things, quite frankly. And I find that just incredibly uplifting. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? The biggest one for me is, and I mentioned it earlier, is the value and importance of relationships and networking. I was lucky enough to do very well in school. I think in some respects, you learn all the wrong lessons in school, which is you learn all the lessons about you as an individual contributor and achieving the highest score that you possibly can as the measure of success. And I think I have a better appreciation for it now. But for me, if I understood 20, 25 years ago, the value of like that incremental hour of studying in the library versus taking that hour to actually go have coffee in this case, when it was probably fun to have coffee back then, it's amazing to me how many of these things kind of way leads on to way from a network and relationship perspective. And that doesn't mean to be a ruthless networker where you're not actually adding value to people, but just to recognize that so much of what you want to do in life is to build a network of people who you can add value to and who can help you also as you think about your career. And I think we often think about individual achievement as the pinnacle of career success. And I think the reality is look like more career success comes from getting an A on your job, but maybe the difference between an A plus or an A plus plus is actually not worth missing out on some interesting network development relationship. Great. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out or ask the manager to reach out to ted at capitalallocators.com. We greatly appreciate your ideas and we'll do our best to help foster transparency and communication across the industry.